typically, you know, we see the debt used for things that come up, acquisitions, right? Or, you know, some sort of strategic move that needs to be made. We often see people extending runway with the debt, right? So, you know, hey, if we draw down, you know, X dollars on this, we can go another six months and we can reach that milestone that's going to create a greater valuation for us at our next fundraise. You know, so, you know, those are a couple of things that we see most likely right now, quite honestly. And this may change as the world changes, you know, a little bit here, but most of our clients right now don't draw down on the facilities at this point, right? Because the market's so flush with equity. So, you know, the best time to get the debt is when you don't need the debt. That's when you got all the equity, right? Hi, it's Kurt Derdix. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, then I'm so glad you found us. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with my friend, Mark DiTargiani, Senior Vice President of Technology Banking at Pacific Western Bank. We first met in November 2021 at the Making Waves event at Kelly Slater Surf Ranch. We became buds, played a little music, talked philosophy, and uh, he really inspired me, and you're going to soon find out why. Mark has a gift for listening and leading, and this episode has a lot to offer as he unpacks his unique and fresh perspective when it comes to leading teams, creating win-win solutions when selling, and also some tips and tricks that can immediately help you strengthen your business and personal relationships. Please go to curtyd.com if you'd like to subscribe to my newsletter and see special content I've created. And on to today's show. Here's Mark. Mark, so good to see you. Where are you today, my friend? I am here in my son's room, actually, in San Carlos. Uh, He's off to college, so I've taken over his room as my work-from-home office. Oh, I love that. That's great. San Carlos. That's a cool spot. Yeah. It's sort of like, is that East Bay? No, it's mid-peninsula. We're just north of Redwood City and Palo Alto. It's called the City of Good Living, and uh, it certainly is. We've been here for almost 20 years now, so certainly enjoy it here. And you guys have a little airport there too, right? We do. We do, and a great uh, and a great omelet restaurant right there at that airport. Sweet. Yeah, I've flown in from Surf Air on occasion to that uh, airport, so I should have known better that it was mid-Peninsula. I flew in from Santa Barbara. That's a really nice flight. Oh, yeah. That would be on Surf Air, too. Right on. Well, I'm so excited. We're new friends. We haven't known each other that long, but you're one of these people that, you know, just like met you, hung out, and I was like, I want to be buds with this guy. (laughs) I felt the same way, Kurt. I mean, it was, uh, we kind of had that brief little connection there with the music, and I think that was, you know, really kind of when it started. But again, you know, meeting at the surf ranch and in that uh, environment, it was certainly a great way to be able to connect with people. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to dig into that for sure. I'm pretty excited. Timmy Curran invited me to go back again and we're going to go hit it on Saturday. So, Oh, right on. Well, I was just talking to Brian and TK and we are making our date for our, you know, the annual number two for making waves. Well, so- we got a little text thread with Jack Johnson and Timmy Curran and trying to align that date with uh, Jack's tour. So that'd be sweet if JJ could jump in with us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that'd be sweet. Just so much to cover. I, I really want to dig into what you're doing at work because it's really timely with everything that's happening in the on the macro trend. But I'm excited because we're I'm going to learn a bunch about you on this show today. So why don't we... Before we get into sort of what's the here and now, let's press rewind a little bit. You have, uh, where'd you grow up, Mark? Uh, I grew up uh, in a number of places. My dad was a uh, climb in the corporate ladder and I was born in New Jersey, moved to Massachusetts, moved back to New Jersey, moved to Ohio, and then ended up in Concord, Massachusetts in fifth grade. That all happened before fifth grade. And uh, we ended up, you know, I ended up growing up really in Concord, Massachusetts is is how I look at it. How far is that from Boston? That's about 23 miles out from Boston. You know, those of you who know your American uh, history will know that at Concord was the rude bridge that arched the flood and the shot heard around the world was fired there. And 
Flash forward another 100 years or so, and we have Henry David Thoreau and Walden and Emerson and Hawthorne and Louisa May Alton and the whole transcendentalist moving movement coming out of uh, Concord. So seeped in history I grew up around. Oh, that's one of the things I'm loving exploring on the show is where people are from and sort of the history and the artifacts that emerge from these different places. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's rich. Yeah, really is. And I ended up being an English teacher. And, uh, you know, I think growing up in Concord and being around all that and my dad being a fan of it, too, was one of those things that really kind of influenced what I was interested in school. Yeah, well, I think that's a great segue. So you studied English at Wesleyan, which is a great school. How was that experience? That experience was amazing. I mean, I came to Wesleyan kind of as a pretty narrow-minded, you know, preppy jock from Concord, Massachusetts. And I was quickly introduced to a more diverse group of people than I had ever been, you know, part of. And Wesleyan really forced me to open my eyes and you know, the school was very adamant about people being able to, to to have their voice heard. And, you know, that meant that other people had to shut up and listen. And I think that was really kind of the first time in my life that I learned, you know, how to listen and and uh, and not just want to say, but also want to hear as well. Yeah, I love that. Part of my story is I was born without ear canals. And so I had uh 35 to 40 percent hearing loss it's like kind of like living your life without with with earplugs in persistently so i could get by but i had to like you know in class i had to sit in the front row if it was if you were farther than six feet away from me i could tell you were talking to me but i would have to read lips and it was pretty challenging and when i i had this incredible miracle happened in 2007 in my early 30s uh, where i got the miracle of hearing with this cochlear implant here kind of show it to you this thing just snaps in my skull and I can hear magically and the big insight that I got from that that relates to what you're talking about is essentially that all those years I just really wanted to hear but when I got my hearing it just really gave me the space to really enjoy and absorb listening Mm, that's a beautiful distinction and you know hearing and listening are you know, are slightly different activities, I think, you know, hearing, you know, really is, I mean, tends to be more about the sounds, I guess, whereas listening really engages the mind as well. I mean, that's maybe how I might, I might uh, look at it. I always used to say the acronym, you know, two ears and one mouth. God was telling us something about the importance of uh, listening versus versus speaking, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think the phrase is use accordingly, right? (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's, that'll be a great kind of foreshadowing to use a riff a little bit on my English skills. There you go. On uh, what we're going to get into later with soul-centered selling, which I'm excited to dig into. And I really do think as sort of business professionals that actively listening is really is key. I, I struggle with it. Being Doing the podcast has really helped me to be a better listener because I go back and have to listen through the conversations and there'll be whole sections where I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I was totally checked out. So. Yeah, no, it, you know, what's amazing about listening is so many of us are listening to respond as opposed to listening to understand. Right. And when you're listening to respond, you're thinking of what it is that you want to say in response to whatever it is you're hearing, as opposed to listening to understand where you're ignore if you can't shut down that internal voice at least you're ignoring it and you're focusing really on what that person is saying and you know asking good follow-up questions is always a great way to start to integrate that into you know into the mind yeah yeah and then you know take be able to take a step back and notice the the emotional signal that we're getting and what information that's telling us you know, we're kind of digging in on learning. What was one of the insights that you learned at school, Mark, that has really stuck with you and was sort of foundational for your success in life and your career? You know, you got to do the work. You got to do the work. And, you know, I got through high school academically pretty much with, you know, my wits and my charm. And, you know, I was a talented athlete as well. And, 
that helped me get into school. But when I got to Wesleyan, it meant nothing. <laughs> and and I thought I could kind of do the same thing and I could kind of watch around and, you know, when it's out, oh, well, you know, a couple of weeks left in the semester, I'll start working and I'll, I'll be fine. And anybody who's, you know, gone through any sort of rigorous academic stuff knows that that doesn't happen. And, you know, I totally overestimated the amount of work that I was going to have to do. And I'll never forget going to a one-on-one with my English teacher. I was taking an English writing course, you know, college writing course. And Professor Coley was his name. And uh, I showed up one late October evening at his office hours and I sat down and I thought we were going to go over my paper. And he looked at me and he said, Mark, what the F are you doing here? And my jaw just dropped. I was like, uh, what? He goes, what are you doing here? This is, you're wasting my time. You're wasting your time. And he just cut into me and called me to account in a way that a teacher had never called me to account. And it it shattered me. I mean, it, it shook me. And I, I, I fumbled through and I ended up, you know, getting a 0.5 GPA in my first semester at, uh, at Wesleyan. But he had turned something on and I realized that, you know, hey, I had an opportunity here. And then when my dad saw those grades a little bit later, he certainly lit a fire under my on my toes as well. And, you know, I learned that I had to work and I just I said, OK, well, I guess I'm here. I got to work. So instead of, you know, partying four or five nights of the week, I started, you know, I started working three, four or five nights of the week. And I actually went to the library and I started doing stuff and I went to see teachers and I learned stuff and I ended up getting a 3.2 GPA my second semester. And when I showed up at uh, school for the fall of my sophomore year, there was a letter in my mailbox from the dean of students. I was like, oh, no, (laughs) what now? You know, and I opened it up and it said, congratulations, you've been awarded the Bruner Freshman Improvement Prize for the greatest academic achievement, but improvement between first and second semesters. And, you know, here's your check for 150 bucks and uh, invitation to the the president's house for the cocktail party. (laughs) So, you know, it was, it turned out to be a great thing. I got to pay off my phone bills and, you know, help the fraternity with its social uh, calendar as well with some of that money. But, you know, bottom line, I really learned how to, how to sit down and work in college, you know? Yeah, that's great. I love that story. What a great, how thoughtful of the school to do that too. Yeah. 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 There's other little things, right? Was that teacher that you mentioned, was that your favorite teacher or is there somebody else that was better? Well, he was certainly the most, you know, one of the most influential and, and he was a crusty old kind of, you know, New England uh, poet, you know, he had the pipes and the patches on the uh, elbows and everything, you know, I mean, he was like a classic and he was a great guy. And But I also had another teacher named Marjorie Rosenbaum, and she was the one who kind of influenced me to become a teacher when I was at Wesleyan. And, you know, I, I graduated from college in, a long time ago in 1985, and, you know, we were in the midst of, you know, Wolf on Wall Street, the excess of the 80s, and all my friends were going to go to New York City and be investment bankers, right? And And I was going through something. It was kind of tough. My senior year, my father had been diagnosed before the you know school year with brain cancer and he was dying during the course of the year and ended up passing away, you know, in May before my graduation. But uh, so I was obviously going through a lot, you know, that I really didn't understand at the time, but I had no motivation to go do interviews with Morgan Stanley or, you know, all the other big banks, like everybody was telling me I should do. And I was telling my teacher about this. And she said, you know, you're pretty good at the, in this class teaching of English, you should be a teacher. And so she hooked me up with a couple of people. And that's how I ended up, you know, right after school, going down to Washington, D.C. and becoming a English teacher at the, uh, the Landon School for Boys in Bethesda, Maryland. And how long did you do that for? I was there for four years. I was there for four years. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was teaching middle schoolers. I was like 22, 23, and they were like 14, 15. I mean, we're like peers now. <laughs> you know, they seemed really young back then. Yeah, that's great. What are what were your favorite books to teach? 
To Kill a Mockingbird was number one. Yeah. Yeah, why, why that book? You know, because it's just such a powerful story, man. I mean, you know, it, it's told from the point of view of Scout and, and it's this child's point of view. And, you know, there's this this loss of innocence that comes through it. But there's also such, you know, perseverance in the characters and, and in Atticus Finch and, you know, and Tom Robinson. And, and, you know, I think it was such a great opportunity to be open up because I taught it to eighth graders and it was a great way of opening up conversations about, you know, about race, about treating people equally, about, you know, the wrongs of the past, about personal accountability. I mean, it's a, it's, and it's just, it's so beautifully written as well. And it's such an easy read, even for, you know, like eighth grade kids, they love reading it. Yeah. Fun. I, I remember it's been a long time since I read it and all those character names and the plot lines kind of coming back to me. So that's really cool. And also, I think has the best movie adaptation of any book I ever taught. So, you know, the whole Gregory Peck, uh, you know, black and white movie from the mid '60s is a great adaptation of it that sticks pretty close to the story. And there's nothing better to motivate eighth graders, particularly back in the '80s, <laughs> to say, "Hey, once we finish the book, we're going to watch a movie." <laughs> like, oh yeah, we're watching a movie. <laughs> Love that. So what was the the transition from teaching into the business world? Yeah, I mean, I've always been kind of a, you know, as I told you, I moved around a lot as a kid. And, uh, you know, I kind of just got used to moving. And after a few years in D.C., I was looking for something different. And I was in a relationship at the time. And the woman was moving to California to go to law school. So I said, what the heck, I think I'll moved to California. And quite honestly, I'd always wanted to move to California. When I was a little kid, I used to watch the Brady Bunch and I'd see, you know, be cold and windy and snow in Massachusetts. And I'd look at the Brady Bunch and I'd see, you know, Marsha and AstroTurfs and I'm like, California, man, that looks like the place to be, to quote another old TV show. But, uh, you know, that, so I had always kind of wanted to go and this was my opportunity and when I got out here, I didn't really know anybody. And my girlfriend at the time was off doing law school and she was very busy. And I was looking for some sort of opportunity. I found a job selling golf clubs at a place called Don Sherwood's Golf and Tennis in, uh, in San Francisco, where I experienced the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. But uh, I found a job through a group of people. I, I'm a lacrosse player. So I got hooked up with a lacrosse team and I ended up getting a job in sales. And, you know, it seemed like it was a, a good job for me as I was a communicator. And, but uh, sales was a lot harder than I thought it would be when I first got into it for sure. Yeah, definitely. Art and science to it, no doubt. What a wild time, to, a fun time to be in San Francisco. And what was that, late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Wow, that sounds like a good time. That was crazy. You know, Silicon Valley was a manufacturing hub back then. You know, they were making disk drives here. They're making, you know, mice here, Logitech, Quantum. They were making touchscreens here. I mean, like, it was quite a manufacturing hub and that changed pretty quickly, but that's the way it was back then. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that stuff's coming back, whether I don't think you know, go come back to Silicon Valley, it's probably not the best use of land, but, uh, yeah, that's some of the stuff I want to dig into what you're doing at the bank now, but well, fast forward. So I'm looking at your LinkedIn. Do you have a lot of interesting stuff? The thing that jumps out at me in the context of what I do in my day-to-day -day at hunt club within the talent market is you're, you had a long stint at Trinet has an incredible reputation in the tech sector as being, at least in the startup space, like here in LA, Trinet has done an incredible job building out a real trusted brand of if you need to get your payroll set up or insurance and all that kind of stuff, it's sort of a one-stop shop. How was your time there and what, what did you really like about that space? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I mean, it, it was... It was a great run there. I was there for about six years. And when I joined Trinet, it was still really a small company. I mean, it was, you know, it was still, it's nothing like what you see today. I mean, it was, it was a small company where 
you know, a lot of the people had been there for 10 plus years and they'd done things a certain way. They had got to a certain growth point. But I joined right about the time where the CEO and the board decided that this was a company that was going to get on the IPO track. And so, you know, I was involved with the sales team at the time. And, you know, when I joined Trinet, I used, I called it, it was a relationship roulette. It was like the wild, wild west, right? Like I'd say, you know, hey, there's this guy, Kirk, that I know at the hunt club. I want to call on him. And somebody else would say, well, I was calling the hunt club, but I was calling to the HR person. I was like, well, Kurt's above the HR person. So I should get the deal with Kurt, right? And, and that's kind of how we played it, right? And I knew a lot of people, so that was an effective, you know, I was good in that game. Yeah, you weaponized or monetized your network in a well, in a great way. Exactly. And so, you know, but that's not a scalable way of, of doing things, particularly when you get on that IPO track. So, sure. you know, they brought in uh, a, a sales, head sales guy named John Turner, JT, who became a great mentor and somebody I learned a lot from about leadership and about, you know, really kind of driving change and evolution in the sales group. And, you know, we went from this kind of, you know, wild, wild west, gunslingers, everybody out there working on their own to a, you know, group that was 20 times bigger than when I first started a sales team that had process, that had verticals. And, you know, I got to be a good part of leading the charge to do that by running a team here in the Bay Area. So it's, uh, Trina was a great run. And, and, you know, we, those of us who were there back then, it's, it's, we're not quite the PayPal mafia, but, you know, we have a good bunch of relationships and, and, you know, we still run across each other and we still do business with each other. How many people were there when you started roughly in 09 when you got there? Remember? Yeah, it's probably six, 700 people there. Yeah. Any idea what the headcount is now? I mean, it's probably 10K somewhere-ish, I would guess. Yeah. And then they, did they go public? Yeah, they went public. Yep. And I was, uh, I was there for the party. I didn't get to go to New York, but uh, our headquarters were in San Leandro. And, uh, you know, we had a nice little cutout thing where you got to stick your, your face through and get your picture taken with the CEO on the, uh, on the, on the IPO. We all got little bells, man. I still got my bell, you know? So it was fun. fun. It was fun. That's great. Well, I think that's a great segue. I'm also looking at your career. You did some executive coaching, which I think is really near and dear to my heart for a bunch of reasons. Talk to me about your coaching background. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think my desire to be a coach, an executive coach came from the impact that it had on me. And, you know, being coached by a couple of great coaches and I was like, wow, this is an amazing thing. This is something I want to pass on to other people. And when you talk about kind of transformations and things and, and, you know, sometimes there's big ones, sometimes there's little ones, sometimes it takes two seconds, sometimes it takes 20 years. Right. But I was a very angry young man when I was in middle school my parents split up. My mother came out as a lesbian, and this was 1975 in Concord, Massachusetts. Things were a little bit different then. You know, so my parents split up, and I didn't really understand it. And, you know, the men in my family had passed on anger as the emotion on how we deal with things. And, you know, my father had a temper, and I had a temper. And, you know, this incident that happened to me you know, really fueled that. And, you know, for a while, it was actually a very valuable thing. I mean, I became a very good football player and lacrosse player to violent games where I was able to go out and hit people and and do, you know, things that on the street would have, you know, got me put away. But uh, I was able to express that and through that and, and it became something that, you know, worked for me for a while. But as I got older, and particularly when I became a father, I started seeing how anger was really limiting me from fulfilling my potential in the business world on the one hand, but really from being the father that I wanted to be on the other hand. And so I sought out coaching 
I wanted to deal with this and I wanted to find out where it came from and why I was doing this. And I, I wanted to break this cycle that had gone down, you know, in the generation because my grandfather was yelling at my dad and I'm sure his dad was yelling at him. And so I, I was transformed through the coaching process. I worked through, with two different coaches over the course of a few years and I really got to understand, you know, where that anger came from and, you know, all the different emotions that it was masking and how to experience those. And, you know, most importantly, how to not yell at my boys because they were four years old and doing things that four-year-olds do. But just being able to breathe, hear that come on and just like, okay, I'll let you make a mess. You know, I mean, and it was, it's not a huge thing in a sense. I mean, in a sense it is, but it's expressed in these little things that come out. Right. And, and so, you know, having gone through that process, I, I wanted to help other people, you know, transform whatever they needed to do. And so went through, uh, you know, got some coaching classes on my belt and, and went out and started working with people. And my niche was, you know, working with founders that tended to be more kind of technical type of founders who were having a hard time selling per se, right? And kind of how you need to work through some insecurities and gain some confidence on your side to be able to go out and really effectively tell the story and do the kinds of sales activities. And when I say sales, I mean, raising money, I mean, getting customers and also hiring people that you need to do as, as a founder. So, you know, that was the impetus behind it. And that was how I, I ultimately expressed it was in working with those folks. Yeah, it seems like a practical expression and evolution, like hearing even the lacrosse story about how you were able to channel that anger into something that was productive, that actually was sort of, you know, not antisocial, right? It's like an acceptable way to, to you know, get the lead out, if you will. And <laughs> I appreciate that. And it sounds like the, um, I mean, look, you know, being a director of sales at Trinet on an IPO train and then being able to transition that out to, you know, running your own sales and your own coaching practice for, for it looks like almost four years. That's pretty cool. Kind of use that same lacrosse insight. Um, it seems like that's part of your, uh, your pattern. How do you make, create, create leverage, right? Or I don't know if that's even the right word, but maybe something around productivity or. Yeah. I mean, it's a constant kind of, I mean, it, it's a willingness to learn and it's a willingness to you know, have that beginner's mind. And, you know, I've reinvented myself a number of times, right? And, you know, that's the word that I use, but I think it's more, these are the evolutions that I'm going through, right? And being willing to try something new, you know, to, to dive into the bank, you know, after I've been not a banker for <laughs> my entire career and to dive in there, right? I mean, that was something that, uh, you know, it was a whole different world that I had seen from the outside, certainly in working with the bank before, but never from the inside. Well, I think that's a great segue. So you're now the senior vice president of technology banking at Pacific Western Bank. You've been there over two years. It looks like you got a, I don't know if a promotion is the right word, but you went from being the VC startup guy to it looks like you, you have a wider mandate now. It makes sense like if you had a great network at Trinet with founders, you were coaching them, that you have this network that was interesting to the bank. For listeners, PacWest acquired Square One. Is that right? A few years back? Correct. Correct. So, you know, Square One was a bank that was founded uh, by some ex-Silicon Valley bankers in Durham, North Carolina, you know, I think in the mid-2000s there. One of the funny, interesting things is that Square One and Trinet went public on the same day. How about that? So, but uh, yeah, so the bank ended up buying Square One in 2015, I think it was. And so we now operate as the venture banking group within Pacific Western Bank, which is a $40 billion bank with business units centered around community banking, asset-based lending, real estate finance for rehabs and uh HOAs actually beyond uh, what we do here in the venture bank. So walk us through, like there's actually a Pacific West Bank branch here close to me. 
And yeah, that all makes sense. I think the Square One thing is interesting because they had such a great brand in the market. They sort of punched above their weight class competing with Valley Bank, which is sort of the 800-pound gorilla and the sort of tech. I think they're up to 900 pounds now. Yeah, 900 pounds now, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think let's interesting that sort of like a more conservative brand acquired sort of this, you know, hot upstart bank. A lot of brand equity there for Square One. So that's that's super cool for you guys to tap into that. I'm curious. So the the core offering that you are delivering is is essentially venture debt, which is an alternative to equity financing. I'd love to learn about like what the ideal clients look like, like who like what's tall enough to ride and then what are what is core product, what are the the terms and the process, where does it work well and where does it break down? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you know, I wouldn't say that venture debt is is in place of equity. It's, it's typically raised on top of the equity, right? So, I mean, it certainly adds to the balance sheet without diluting anymore, right? So, you know, venture debt's a, a product that most companies that are raising, you know, significant equity rounds from institutional investors are at least taking a look at these days, right? You know, venture debt for us works best with a company that has raised fresh equity from investors that we are familiar with. It's, you know, there's a founding team in there that we can, uh, you know, look at and say, you know, these are very talented people in their field. They know something extra. They've been through it before. What are the characteristics of that team? You know, obviously, what's the, the market opportunity? But revenue is something we look at, too, as an early stage, right? Because some of what we'll lend against is that recurring revenue in the case of SaaS businesses, right? But typically where we're going to land, and the technology is important, too, but we don't think of ourselves as tech experts. And that's one of the reasons that we lean on the VCs, because we figured they're, they're doing much more tech diligence than we would do as a bank. Our diligence is mostly focused around the financial side of things, but we'll typically lend anywhere from 25 to 40-ish percent of the dollars that were raised. So if you raise 30 million in a B round, we might give you a bid for $10 million line. Some of that might be available to you right away. Some of it, you might have to hit some milestones to hit, but what we're doing now is a combination of that formula revolver and term loans and putting those together to get to the total amount that we'll get there. But, uh, you know, we do checks from as small as a couple million up to about 70 million or so that we can write on our own. And then if it's bigger than that, we tend to, to syndicate as well. So we compete against that 900 pound gorilla that we talked about before and some other players in the space, including some private debt funds. But what really, you know, we're focused on is creating or creating solutions for our clients that fit their particular business needs. And as we look at the landscape, we know there's no business that's exactly like any other business. So we pride ourselves on the ability to be flexible enough to really kind of work around what the business needs and be working almost in collaboration with them as we put together what we're proposed as a debt facility. Got it. Does the debt facility... Is that sort of the kind of the broader offering where you mentioned there's a you can do a sort of a revolver, which would be essentially a credit line you could draw and sort of like a home equity line of credit against the house, right? But just against a business asset. Yeah, against the recurring revenue. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other term loan would just be a fixed bag of cash at a fixed term or rate in a, with a fixed uh, amortization schedule. Yeah, with some sort of interest only and drawdown period and then some sort of amortization, usually 18 months or so in the interest drawdown, maybe 24 months on the amortization with some variety there, a little bit of movement, but that's pretty generic there. And is the facility a combination of both of those things or is the facility just the access to the capital? It depends. Usually there's going to be some sort of combination, you know, yeah. particularly with companies that are experiencing quick revenue growth, right? Because then we can say, hey, you know, you guys are at, you know, X MRR and, and we're going to give you six times that, you know, MRR. But look, in a year from now, you're telling us you're going to be at X, you know, times two 
MRR, and now you're going to have twice as much to on your on your credit line to draw from, right? So it's a good way to to kind of lend into the growth of the company, if you will. Is there a pattern you see that founders and CFOs and whatnot deploy capital? So wh- where is the debt financing being allocated to versus equity financing, or is it all the same? Well, you know, it's a good question. I mean, typically, you know, we see the debt used for things that come up, acquisitions, right? Or, you know, some sort of strategic move that needs to be made. We often see people extending runway with the debt, right? So, you know, hey, if we draw down, you know, X dollars on this, we can go another six months and we can reach that milestone that's going to create a greater valuation for us at our next fundraise, you know? So, you know, those are a couple of the things that we see most likely right now, quite honestly. And this may change as the world changes, you know, a little bit here. But most of our clients right now don't draw down on the facilities at this point, right? Because the market's so flush with equity. So, you know, the best time to get the debt is when you don't need the debt. That's when you got all the equity, right? But, you know, we don't, some firms out there will charge you or force you to draw some down or charge you because, they're ultimately making money on, you know, the interest of, of that they're making off the loan. You know, what's interesting about our bank and the, the diversity that we have and the uniqueness of it is the venture banking group, we act almost as a deposit gatherer, right? Because, you know, when we bring over these clients, they're coming with good chunks of equity that they're going to put in the bank. And that's, that's dollars in the bank that we can then lend out through our asset-based lending group or our real estate group or whatever the case is. So we don't have to be dependent on our borrowers drawing down the line to meet the goals that we have from a financial perspective. Now, will that change as the market tightens up? And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. How much of the debt is fixed versus variable rate? It's all variable pretty much at this point. All variable. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So risk-free rate. Is that that's going to be going up? But there's usually a ceiling. There's usually a seat, a floor, and a ceiling too. Yeah. Are you seeing underwriting guidelines get a little tighter? Yeah, yeah. I think you know that's one of the things you mentioned earlier. Kind of you know the old school bank buying the new school bank sort of thing, right? And there was definitely I think some some growing pains to get to know you. But uh, I think what we're learning, you know, is what are the deals that are good deals for our bank and what we're looking for and and the types of of businesses that we want to we want to work with and you know that kind of keeps us focused on on that but it has been you know we grow go to our credit committee with all of our deals and you know it's it's knowing kind of the business understanding the business spending time with the entrepreneurs and the investors so that we can present the strengths of the business and mitigate the risks of the business in a sense where, you know, we can put a structure together that we get comfortable with that we feel, you know, can last the test of time, at least the time until they raise another equity round. Yeah. I love that. So what is the ideal client profile? And then what is the process from kind of start to finish to get from application, you know, first introduction to the uh, drawn on? Yeah, I mean, the ideal client is a company that's raised equity from institutional investors. They have revenue growth. They have an experienced team. They're in a marketplace that's growing and there's a big opportunity. And, you know, we value very much the introduction, right? Because when our partners introduce us to somebody, that adds another layer of good green check for the company, right? Because we trust our our folks that... uh that bring us deals, right? So, you know, those are important things. Those are important things, right? If you got all of those things, then we'll probably lend to you. If you got, a, you know, you're missing one or two, then we're going to need to work kind of through things, right? But ultimately, the process begins with a phone call and and getting to know everybody and and understanding a little bit more about the the company and the team and what they're looking for. And then can we work within the parameters of that they're looking for? Typically, then we go into a due diligence period that takes us, you know, a couple of weeks or so to kind of break through. And typically the companies have all the due diligence together that we need because they've just raised an equity round. So we're pretty much using the same stuff. So we do what we need to do underwriting that with our spreads. And then, 
you know, we come back with indicative terms and we, we say, this is what we're thinking. How's that work? And they might say, well, can you do this? And we say, well, what, what do you think about this? Can we give up here and get a little something here? And then we go to our credit committee and we get an approval. Sometimes it's a conditional approval. And then we go back to the company and we talk over what we're able to do. And then we go back to our committee, we get a term sheet issued, and then our client goes and, and signs the term sheet is our goal that we're getting at the end there. But the whole process, you know, really is a, it's a four to six week process because everybody's got to do everything and, you know, people get busy and, and things go, but, you know, four weeks is really moving through six weeks, you know, and typically by six to eight weeks we're funding. Well, you guys are faster than Bank of America. I have a home equity line of credit I'm doing with them. They're the only one of the only banks that are doing HELOCs now. Really? For consumers yeah and it's like a three four month process wow there's no reason for that (laughs) i should go to you guys (laughs) yeah we didn't do the locks i know i know well that that makes sense so four to six weeks front to back that's probably a pretty standard process with the rest of the folks in the in the market yeah it is pretty much yeah yeah what's different about you guys then and what's sort of special and unique about working with pacific west besides getting the wonderful pleasure of working with you, Mark. Well, that's, you know, key. That's first and foremost right there. But, you know, at Pacific Western, I mean, we're really, you know, we're a relationship-focused bank and, you know, we're a community bank at our heart, right? And what's a community bank? A community bank is that bank on Main Street that you come in and the, you know, the cookies are warm and, you know, the coffee's being served. But it's that focus on relationship, I think that is something that where we put first and foremost we're also looking for quality deals and not necessarily quantity deals. You know, we're not going to do every deal, but we want to find ones that, that work within our parameters and that have people that appreciate that that touch. And, you know, there's the deal and there's getting that done. And then there's, okay, now you're moving over to Pacific Western Bank and you're becoming a client of the bank. And, and what does that look like beyond what the terms of the loan are and all that? And that's where we really place a lot of focus on those relationships, right? And, you know, our internal people, you know, don't have to cover the number of clients that our competitors do, right? You're talking about Bank of America, you know, taking three months. Well, how many HELOCs are they doing right now, particularly if they're the only ones in the market? And, you know, how many people they have working on them, right? And that's a, it's a function of those things. And, you know, I know that our competitors have, service models that are different than ours that are focused on 800 numbers and, you know, self-service on the web and that. And we have the self-service and and our digital banking platform is extremely strong, but we also have that phone number that you can call up and say, Hey, you know, what's going on here? And it's not just an 800 number. It's the phone number of your portfolio manager. It's the phone number of me. It's the phone number of your loan underwriters. Right. So, you know, it's people that can pick up the phone and respond and I think that's, you know, really where in today's day, it's it's a little bit different. But, uh, you know, I think that's where we look to separate ourselves. And then really in, in terms of doing the loans, as I said earlier, it's that flexibility and the desire to, to try to fit the goals of the company as much as possible and the willingness to kind of work with them through the process to, to do that other than saying, okay, you're a series A company with this, boom, this is the loan package there, bang, right? So we're customizing stuff as we go. Yeah, probably I would make a sort of an assumption or a leap that the you know CEO, founder, executives that are working with you guys on these debt facilities, they're you know well-to-do and there's other banking needs that they have. So if they're doing, you know, other investments, other, you know, projects, even could, I could even think you guys are, you know, pretty have a pretty good real estate business there's there's probably you know that kind of relationship that is probably unique that pacific western bank has to offer right in that that context yeah i think definitely from the business side of things too right and and we don't do any personal banking right and so you know we're focused on you know managing and investing our resources in the business and you know the founders and the executives and the other clients of the business can bank where they bank. But ultimately, you know, we're focused on that, that business side of things. And, you know, we have, you know, 
we have an asset management group that's internal that you know does a lot for our clients as far as you know protecting their capital and getting a little bit of a of a return on it. But again, that's a smaller group that you can have access to. You can have access to the people. So I think in a nutshell, that's how I I characterize our how we're different. Yeah, great. Well, that's a fabulous overview. Yeah. We also like to think of ourselves, Kurt, as the fun bankers. We're the fun bankers. You know, we like to go down fun, right? Like, you know, go surfing and things like that. Yeah, that was great. Well, no, I really, really appreciated you guys uh, underwriting some of the uh, Surf Ranch thing that we did in November, making Waves event. I met some incredible people through that and uh, got a bunch of great podcast interviews and got some business out of it as well. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's sort of a network that we're activating and that's how business gets done, right? Yeah. And, you know, especially as we emerge from the pandemic, I mean, people like to do business with people that they know and they like and they trust, right? And it's hard to get from no to trust on a Zoom call, right? You need people to to be there and, and, and to experience people's energies and connections and and be able to look them in the eye and, and, you know, see a smile on their face. I mean, those simple little things, you know, I've learned to appreciate a great deal more on this, you know, back end of the pandemic. Yeah. Well, we're social creatures. I'm really looking forward to collaborating with you, Mark, in May for the event we're going to do with Brian Garrett from CrossCut at his new pad in Pacific Palisades. That'll be good. So anybody in the audience that is interested, we're going to be doing an invite-only salon, about 40 folks, and be pretty pretty nice evening. So more of those to come. Well, I think that's a great segue into humanizing success, which is one of the core themes of the show. And I've shared, even at the beginning of the show, some of the challenges with my hearing. Similar to you, my parents broke up when I was in middle school. That was really, really tough. I had a lot of anger out of that as well, so I could identify and relate with you there and ended up helping my dad get sober from a pretty nasty drug and alcohol addiction when I was in. Amazing podcast. I, I listened to that one and that story is so powerful, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all have things that we challenge, we battle with, you know, I mean, this is a part of the, the being alive. It's a challenging world. And you know, feels like it were, we've moved into the season where there's more volatility, you know, there's more challenges on the horizon, you know, stuff we're dealing with, with, you know, war in Europe and, and we have climate change and, you know, we all sort of have to work together to make, to sort of make it work. And I think part of that is just being honest about stuff. And uh, so having said that, in the spirit of coaching too, I do believe that the bigger the breakdown, the bigger the possibility for a breakthrough. Yes, definitely. So having said all that, what is there a challenge personally or professionally that you face and overcome that you're comfortable sharing? And how'd you get over the hurdle and what gifts did the pain give you? I mean, you've already, already were really honest about, you know, your mom coming out. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's something else, but whatever you're comfortable sharing, of course. And uh Yeah. Well, and I love this part of, you know, your podcast. And, and I think, you know, it, for me, it really is about that anger. And, you know, it kept me from a lot. It kept me very egocentric. It kept me very focused on my needs and, and what I wanted. And, you know, the anger that I would experience when I didn't get those things. And, you know, I think that for me, the success is in the relationship that I have with my sons. And, you know, both of them are great guys that I love dearly. And, you know, I tell them constantly, you know, I love you. And I hug them and I kiss them. And, you know, and I let them know. And my dad didn't grow up around that. And that wasn't the way he was. And, you know, if if my sons move into their young adult years and beyond and don't, you know, struggle with this kind of addiction to anger almost kind of thing, then I think that's the success, right? And, you know, seeing them so far, I'm pretty optimistic about what's going on. But I think for me, that's where I see the greatest success. And, and I think part of that, again, was this the willingness 
to learn and the willingness to change and the willingness to shine a light down where the darkness is and, you know, be willing to kind of recognize that and go through that and, you know, in the same breath kind of accept it and also let it go at the same time. And, you know, so I think that's where I would focus my time. You know, my mother and I had ended up having a great relationship you know, and she taught me something very valuable. And that was, you got to be who you are. And my mom would always say to me after I talked to her on the phone, she'd say to me, you be you. So I'd say, hey, all right, mom, see you later. Love you. She goes, you be you. I love that. It, but it, it used to piss me off, man. Yeah, yeah. My mom, her thing she'd say to me is think good thoughts. And I'd be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> right. I'm like, why are you saying you love me? Right. You know, it's like, you be you. Go, who else am I going to be, Mom? Come on. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. But as I've grown and as I've, you know, learned a bit more myself, I found out that that's the greatest thing she ever taught me is you be you, you know? And so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Mark, what's your mom's name? Sharon. Sharon Barker. All right. She's still around? She is not. She passed, uh, I think it was just about uh, seven years ago, I think it was. Yeah. All right. Well, sorry to hear that, but I'm really glad that uh, you were able to share that story. And uh, Sharon sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was a character. We put on her gravestone, Maverick. (laughs) And that is what she was. She was a Maverick. Well, it sounds like you are too. And I think one of the other things that I wanted to dig into that that we got into that I think is another gift I'm hearing is soul-centered selling. Yeah. And it sounds really to me like one of the insights you got from kind of your challenge around overcoming anger was that you've been able to model the behavior for your kids, which is incredible. That feels a lot like what my dad's been able to do for me. And that's, you know, it's, that's growing up. And uh, I think in that same breath, talk to us about soul-centered selling. What, why, what is it and, and what can we take away from that in our, and how can we benefit from it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, soul-centered selling came from a reinvention of how I was as, as a salesperson. And, you know, as I mentioned before, this anger and, and the ego that was associated with it was very prevalent with me as a young man. And, you know, once I kind of figured out how to sell, I became enamored with closing. And, you know, this was, in the early 90s and, you know, the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross idea, always be closing, you know, this idea that I could manipulate and influence and get people to do something that they wouldn't do and that otherwise and I could benefit from it and I'd get paid. There was something weirdly attractive to me in that end. And I became really good at it. I, you know, the Colombo close, the one where you're walking out and you're like, they say no, and you're walking out, and you turn around, and you go, one more thing. <laughs> yeah. And like that was, or, you know, there was the takeaway close. So, I, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that. And, and there was all these closes, and we'd sit around and go, yeah, I, just, I used that close there. And, and it was like this thing about me, right? Like what I could do to get what I wanted and whatever was happening to this other person, you know. Yeah. It's a zero sum. It's a win-lose yeah. dynamic. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I was married. We got married and went to Puerto Vallarta for a honeymoon. And we're driving over to the hotel. And uh, the cab driver says, you know, hey, if you go to this, you know, this event tomorrow and go through this presentation, you'll get a hundred bucks and a free bottle of tequila. And I looked at my wife and I was like, hundred bucks and free bottle of tequila and free breakfast. I mean, we got to go. She's like, it's one of those things. It's, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, ah, let's just, we'll just go get the free tequila and the lunch and, you know, we'll be good. It'll be a fun day. So we go over there and we get our tours and, you know, we get our little lunch and then they literally bring us into this room that has no windows. Right. And we're in the, after we've been in this, you know, seeing all the ocean and all this beautiful stuff and everything, and now they bring us in this like room with no windows, with the fluorescent lights. You know, it's like almost like we're, you know, getting interrogated as criminals by the cops. And they sat there and pitched and closed and closed and closed. 
And Lord have mercy, I flew down my brand new credit card and I swiped it and I bought a timeshare. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, we'll use it. We'll use it. And I'm walking out with my wife. They're like, oh yeah, great. We'll see them. Yeah, honey. Well, that was, you know, we'll use it. And I just didn't feel good. And I went back to the pool and I'm sitting there and I'm trying a little bit of the tequila, which wasn't even that good tequila, actually. (laughs) And somewhere through this little mini tequila buzz I was putting on, I was like, I had this epiphany and I was like, wait a second. I feel like shit. I feel terrible. I feel like I've been violated. I feel like, you know, someone put something over me. I feel embarrassed. I like, and I was like, wow, is this what people feel like when I leave the room? Like after I'm rocking out, like, hey, I closed them. Yeah, you know, like, is this what I'm sowing in the world? Right. Like, I just, it was like, whoa, this doesn't feel good. And it totally, changed how I sold because I went back and I tried to sell the same way and I just couldn't man I just was like I couldn't do it and I got to figure something else out and you know I, I kind of went back to my teaching days and I said what made me a good teacher and what made me a good teacher was I asked good questions I listened as we said earlier to the answers asked follow-ups listened to understand and I told some good stories along the way to keep everybody interested and to illustrate some points. And I said, well, maybe I can do this in selling. So I just started going and I started asking a lot of questions. And I I started just kind of letting people talk and getting to know people and taking people out to lunch and and just kind of getting to know these people and being interested in who they are as opposed to just the fact that they represent a purchase order for me. Right. And so I suddenly started having fun. I was doing even better than I had been before. And people actually like seemed like they wanted to see me as opposed to like they had to see me before. Right. And so, you know, through this process, I started thinking about it and I came up with this concept of soul centered selling. And it's really it's centered in intention. Right. And intention is is so powerful. And, you know, in my old world, my intention was to close, to sell. That's what I'm going to sell you. I'm going to close you. And that was my intention. And that led to behaviors that were aligned with that intention, the Colombo clothes, this thing, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, what shifted was that intention to, to serve and that intention that I'm going to serve people, that I'm going to come from, you know, a place of servant leadership, of servant sales and ask questions and help people get what they want. Because if I help them get what they want, then probably I'm going to get what I want in the long run. Yeah. Win-win. Yeah. Positive game. Win-win. Exactly. And so, you know, I came up with this concept, what I'd been doing. I just, I work in acronyms, man. I make a lot of acronyms in my life. And soul was an important one, soul-centered selling. And the S stands for be a student of the story, right? And we're all telling a story, whether we realize it or not. Your prospect is telling you a story. You're telling them one. My whole thing is let's be conscious of it. Let's be aware of the stories that we're telling. Let's be receptive and open to the story that we're being told and not feel like we have to force our story. So be a student of the story. Understand the story. Always observe and orient, right? So now that I know what I know, now that I've not only listened to you, but I've observed, you know, your body movements or what's in your in your between the words that you're saying, whatever the case is. Now that we know what we know, where do we go, right? Is this somebody that I can help or is this somebody that I can introduce to maybe somebody else who can help them, right? So that's that qualification stage, which to me now is the most important part of the sales process. I used to think closing was, but qualifying. Is this somebody I can help, right? I mean, let's find out soon. So either I can help you or we can all move on and go to the next one. You is understanding and And that's really that idea of understanding what's at stake for your buyer, because people buy for a variety of reasons, but they tend to be emotional reasons. And, you know, they tend to buy, some buy out of fear, some buy out of a desire for some sort of acceptance, some buy out of whatever that emotional thing might be. But what people tell you typically is they'll tell you they have a problem and listen to that problem. And that problem tends to create 
level below that, which is some sort of problem in the business. And that problem then in the business is creating some sort of problem or issue in that person's world, right? And if you can get down to that third level of understanding, you're really, you know, you're serving the person. You're, you're understanding kind of what's at stake and what really they need. You know, an L is, is the concept of leadership. In my old sale days, I used to push people. And now it's more of, hey, this is what do I understand your problem? This is what the world can look like. Follow me and let's go to that world together and we'll all feel a lot better. So it's that idea of sales as being leaders. I mean, to me, great salespeople have always been leaders, right? And great leaders have always been really good salespeople as well. And that's that idea of sales too. I mean, I, I'm going to do a little tangent, but people think the word sales is kind of a dirty word sometimes, you know? Yeah, it's a poor letter word, sleazy bird. <laughs> yeah, you know? And sales is just, you know, it's service. It's helping people. It's getting out there and helping to solve problems. And, you know, as I look at it like that, that's one of the most, you know, one of the most powerful and positive things that I can do in the world is help people solve their problems. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a real slippery slope because, you know, good salespeople can be very, very persuasive and it's a, it's a very powerful combination of skills and and you know with that power you can do lots of good but equally with lots of damage similar with anything i guess same with money same with you know lots of these mechanisms are like that and i, I really appreciate the intention and the it's a really catchy acronym so soul so being a student of the story that's the s the o is observe and orient right yep you is the understanding and that's sort of the insight that you get and then the L is the leadership, and that's sort of a pull motion versus a push or an attract. Motion. Yeah, follow. That leadership is where the action happens, right? That's where the action happens, you know? Yeah. That's something I've had to really work on is to be, to, to not have to force the outcome, but just let things flow. And I, I do this setup that you're describing is, it's a rule very similar to what I try to do, but I have, a, I still have a lot of work to do, no doubt. I love that we all do. <laughs> I love the idea of being a student of the story, though, and I'm being because I think what that does is it grounds you in reality, and it sets up the state to be able to truly observe the the environment. Because I think the problem that a lot of us get into, and I know especially like with like investing or if in in team building or going after something, is I failed when I the game that I'm playing is different than the game that's actually being played, right? And I think that's really what your your method helps to get clear and get grounded in really what game is really going on. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Kurt. It really is. And, you know, if you're playing a different game than your prospects play in this, <laughs> it's not going to end well, is it? I mean, you guys got to be playing the same game, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a great segue. Let's do a couple rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap up. Best boss or partner you ever had? Who was it and why? Pete Biasini. Pete Biasini was my first sales boss. He's the one who taught me to work hard in sales, but he also taught me that you have to ask for the order. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean closing. That can be leadership as well. But, you know, that was one of the things that Pete taught me. And Pete taught me also how to really care for people. And as a leader, you know, he started off in this company that I was at called RS Hughes. It was a, it's a 3M distributor, industrial supplies. He started off as a sales guy and ended up being the president and CEO of the company. And, you know, it was because of how he treated people and and he always made you feel so good, man. Like when you were hanging with Pete, you felt great. Oh, I love that. That's a great insight. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue. So best team or company culture you've ever been a part of? So far. Seems like you're trying to do a great job at what you're doing at yeah, no, definitely. I mean, PacWest is definitely there, but my greatest teams ever, I think of my lacrosse teams when I think of those. I think of, you know, the impact I've had with some kids. And I think of, you know, middle school lacrosse team I had at the Landon School in the in the mid-80s. That was a great team. I had a team down in La Jolla when I was coaching at La Jolla High School. We called them the dogs because our saying was the Shakespeare phrase, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. And then I think about a, a team I had recently at Sequoia High School where, you know, it's just when those sports teams kind of come together and gel, 
and you, you have that intensity of that competition together and you go through these very physical but also emotional challenges together, it's pretty cool how that stuff can build. So, But I definitely give a shout out to, uh, to JT at Trinet as well because he created a great team culture there as well. Yeah, who's JT? John Turner, who is the he was the the head of sales at Trinet when we went up through the outreach. Yeah, we'll have to track him down and send him this. Join <laughs> the band. If you could have magically any band play any venue, future, past, or now, present, who would it be and where? It would be the Rolling Stones in my backyard, man. <laughs> <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> this weekend, and they let me get up on stage and play harmonica with them instead of me. Yeah, I love that. Well, and for the audience, Mark's a really good harmonica player. We got to play some music at the Surf Ranch, and it was fun. Great. So wrapping up, how can our audience be helpful to you? And if people want more info, how can they find you, Mark? Well, people can be helpful by just reaching out. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in having conversations with folks because you never know what connections might be made and who I might know that can help you or who you might know that could help me or whether we could even help each other, right? So- I'm open to, to conversations and love to to learn about people and the businesses that they're star and it's starting and the dreams that they have. Best way to reach me, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn a lot, Mark Ditarjani, D-I-T-A-R-G-I-A-N-I. I sort of go on Twitter every now and then, but I'm not really proficient in that, but I'm at Ditar on that, D-I-T-A-R. And those are probably the best ways to get more. Email me too at M D I T A R. G-I-A-N-I at PacWest, P-A-C-West.com. So those are the best ways. Awesome. Well, Mark, it's been a really wonderful conversation. We covered a lot of ground. I so appreciate you. And, you know, we're still new friends, but I'm, I'm looking forward to spending more time together. And uh, you're a scholar and a gentleman. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Kurt. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, this is really special what you're doing with with this podcast and and I'm honored to be a part of it, man. Have a great weekend. Appreciate it. Gratitude. Thanks again to my friend, Mark DiTargiani for being our guest. I appreciated his soul centered selling as a framework for being a student of the story, observing, understanding, and leading. This is good stuff. I'm at Curdy D on Twitter and Instagram. Also Kurt to Derrick's on LinkedIn. Until next time, Curdy D loves you. Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit curdyd.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on the Curdy D Show.